Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and board view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder, these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What is it for this week, Andrew? Uh, this week we are talking about sutures, something a little more practical, a little less in the books, although it is actually in a book that I'm not sure all of you, you being ophthalmology trainees, because I know you get the BCSC, but I don't know that you get this book amongst the BCSC, right, Ben? Right. Um, um, it's it's like the, the cover is like a different color, you know, Usually, I think in most editions, you know, so it's yeah. like, he's kind of like this, like, there's like a pair of them, like these little odd kids out about ophthalmic surgery. And I always kind of mix them up because one's called Basic Principles of Ophthalmic Surgery and the other is uh, something else. <laughs> I have to reach for it. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they ca- they came for, for the residency program Ben and I went to at Yale. We just, just sort of got the whole set. Not everybody might have it, but it's actually pretty nifty. And there's a whole yeah. chapter on sutures, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, sutures. And all, I think the books are actually quite well written and like high yield. So if you know you're getting the OR at this point, which might be motivating you to listen to this episode, then like I would really take a look at those books. Like I, I, I really enjoy them. So, and I, I should probably do a quick shout out. I, a lot of this will come from material that my new chair, my new boss, actually wrote. Uh, so shout out to Keith Carter and Jennifer Lee, authors of that this particular chapter in that book on surgery techniques. So let's, to break this up, we're going to talk about the actual, um, the suture first. So we're going to split it up into different categories of the suture. And then we'll talk about the needles a little bit at the end. And then we'll be done. Uh, needles so, at the end. Yeah, uh, that was, actually wasn't intended. I'm mad now. <laughs> okay, so broad categories for suture types. There's absorbables and non-absorbables. So let's talk about absorbable sutures first. There's like three of them that actually may see some use within ophthalmology. There's gut, vicral, and then PDS, uh, you, you know, maybe that's going to be used in, I don't know if you'd actually use that in. Yeah, we haven't seen it, there's, but there's honestly. Plastics people, yeah, plastics people out there, please like correct us, you, you know, or, or there's other things even called like biosin and such. We'll mainly talk about uh, gut and vicral which is um, the generic name is polyglactin, but Vicryl is kind of the brand name that most people are familiar with. So let's start with gut. How long do, can you consider gut to provide wound support? Uh, between four to eight days. Cool. You know, gut is, is gut. It's usually from the gut um, of some kind of animal. Some, a couple of interesting things about it is it absorbs more rapidly in actively inflamed or infected tissue. So, you know, that, that's a consideration if you're trying to do repair on someone, but like, you know, if you think their tissue is inflamed or infected, then you maybe should steer away from the gut. But another disadvantage is it itself can cause an inflammatory tissue reaction. So some people even uh, shy away from using it in eyelids because it can leave an inflammatory reaction that may get, lead to a higher propensity for scars. So, you know, defer to your local practice patterns on whether to use gut. You know, I've used it, had good results, but I'm not an oculoplastics person. So, so defer um, to, your, to your attendings on that. And then lastly, you may have heard of something called chromic gut. That's just, it's gut, it's just treated with a chromic salt solution on it. And that helps improve its tensile, str- maintain tensile strength for longer. 
BCSC does not say that it extends the wound support by more than 48 days. It doesn't give an exact number, but you know, if you want something to stick right a little bit longer in standard gut, then that's maybe why you turn to chromic gut. Uh, what can you tell us about Vicryl, Andrew? Oh, yes, Vicryl. So the question you asked me on the outset about gut, how long does it maintain wound, wound, uh, wound closure support wound structure? Support. Yeah. How long does it provide wound support? Uh, a little bit longer than gut, 7 to 10 days. Now, um, that's not actually the same amount of time that we're talking about before the the thing actually goes away completely, mind you. And we bring, I bring that up because Vicryl is used a lot for ocular surgery. You know, we're talking about gut as a primarily skin related, oculoplastics often uses it, kind of related suture of choice. Vicryl does see a ton of ocular use, which means your patients are going to be asking you, doc, when the heck is this thing going to stop poking the inside of my eyelid? And this is where, you know, good surgical technique comes into play. But at some point, patients are going to want to know when the thing's going to dissolve completely. Seven to ten, 10 days is not that answer. So even if you put in Vicryl, because it's absorbable, just know it actually might take up to three months before the Vicryl goes away completely on its own. So you know, usually when you want to pull, pull suture, like remove it at a post-op visit, you're usually doing that for nylon if you chose to use nylon, but just know you might have to do that or at least do some trimming of Vicryl also. That seven to 10 days thing is only for how long the wound support's gonna last. Yeah, if you want something to remain opposed for longer than seven to 10 days and is not your answer. Also, even though it can take three months, like if you put, if you just bury Vicryl under someone's skin, it could take like, you know, two to three months for it to completely absorb. For a lot of times with the eye, because the knot is usually exposed on the conjunctiva or whatnot, you know, enough of the suture may dissolve that it could fall out and become loose. And like, you know, enough of like part of the circle of the, the suture could dissolve so that, you know, it could fall out on its own. So it may not completely dissolve, but it could fall out. And patients may sometimes report it as like, oh, I found this like weird eyelash or whatever. And you look and the vicryl is gone. And usually that's okay because it's beyond the seven to 10 days. That might happen more typically like two or three weeks out. Gut and Vicryl both have a lot of memory to them, just structurally, so they can be a little more frustrating and have a higher learning curve to work with. Just know we all sympathize with you. It was uh, everybody in the glaucoma departments loves to complain about Vicryl, especially the really small gauge Vicryl stuff. And then the last suture that, that you know we'll talk about is PDS, and this lasts longer, 15 to 20 days. However, we rarely use it in ophthalmology. It, it might be used in oculoplast. You know, kind of more generally, it's definitely used for things like fascial suturing and general surgery or obstetrics because it lasts long enough to help keep the fascia opposed to, to promote wound healing. But yeah, those are um, the absorbables that we'll talk about this episode. Now, non-absorbable sutures. So the ones we'll mention are silk, nylon, proline, uh, polyester, and we'll talk a little bit about Gore-Tex as well. Okay, so let's start with silk. Um, Andrew, why do we use silk in intraocular surgery? Because uh, it's so nice to work with. It's uh, all those kind of annoying memory issues that I talked about with the absorbable stuff, Vicryl in particular, how it likes to coil around itself and it keeps coiling and it remembers where it wants to coil it, which is never where you want it to go. Silk 
behaves exactly how you want it. It's easy, it's common. Um, so we usually actually use it for stuff when we want to direct the eye around and where our suture is placed, you know, we clamp it to things to hold it in place that makes for great traction sutures for that reason. It, we can pass it around muscles just to kind of mark where the muscles are, also to, you know, pull the eye in different directions that way too. Basically, it's a great way to anchor the eye and direct the eye wherever you want it to be. Yeah, and it's essentially like an intraoperative temporary suture most of the time within for intraocular and, um, and, and you know, oculoplastic type surgery. Um, we usually don't leave silk in the eye or the periorbital structures. Um, okay. And then, so nylon is like a big one that we use in ophthalmic surgery. Okay, so it's a, quote, permanent suture. An important thing to remember, though, is that while it's, quote, permanent and it's not absorbed, this is definitely true, it does gradually lose strength over time. So that means if you put in, you know, these sutures for like your penetrating keratoplasty, your full thickness corneal transplant, you can't expect it to hold tension forever. And in the cornea surgery, you wouldn't need it to because, you know, the cornea will eventually heal and provide tensile strength on its own. You know, I bet we can all think of patients if you've been through training enough to have to come in every couple months because they feel like your suture is getting loose. And this is one of those reasons why. BCSC cites that they lose about 20% strength per year. And it also um, helps to motivate why one shouldn't use it in intraocular procedures that require permanent maintenance of tensile strength. A big one of those is iris suturing. Like if you're trying to um, do a purse string in an iris to keep it at a certain size to bring the that size of the iris to make it round and and smaller nylon is not a very good choice for that because eventually it will lose tensile strength and it'll become loose and you probably have to go back in the eye to like fish it out honestly which brings us to the next feature we're going to talk about can you tell us about proline andrew oh that's to me okay yeah. um yeah proline a common uh, name for the material that proline is made of is polypropylene which actually is what makes up a lot of great intraocular uh, devices that we use. I think, uh, I think the, what the call sheet? It's been a while since I used one. The Malugan ring? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That's made of polypropylene. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a twisted proline suture. Right, a giant proline suture. Yeah, so it's a great material because, like Ben was saying, unlike nylon, which eventually is known to degrade over time, at least as far as tensile strength, uh, proline and polypropylene in general has more staying power. It doesn't change in tensile strength itself, so it's really good for things that you need permanently there. Not just iris suturing, you know, this comes up a lot when you are suturing things to the iris or to the sclera that you really don't want to move around, say an IOL or something. It is a bit harder to handle than nylon though. It uh, doesn't quite have the memory that Vicryl does. But it uh, doesn't always want to go where you want it to go. And so it's also in a monofilament all the time, which means uh, it could be a little more slippery against itself when you're tying a knot with it. So you might have to throw an addition, put down an additional throw with proline than you would with any other thing, with anything else. But it's great for... Um, you know, not causing a lot of inflammatory reaction, it resists infection. So it can be useful as a suture that you either want to leave in there or that you want to pull out or through something like a, uh, oftentimes for glaucoma tubes, we'll stick a proline suture in there to act as the ripcord. 
All right, and it, it works for the wolf for that because it can resist infection because it is something that's kind of sticking out of the eye, even if you, no matter how well you tuck it, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the next one we'll talk about is polyester sutures, which is uh, the common brand name is Mersaline. Or at least Mersaline is one kind. Yeah, Mersaline is one type of, uh, of a polyester sutures. These are typically braided and have, have a lot of similar properties to proline. It doesn't lose tensile strength, but it has a much higher coefficient of friction. So it, you know, um, if you dig it into tissue, it'll slide around much less compared to a very smooth suture like proline. So there are some uses for it in things like oculoplastics, like a lateral tarsal strip, where you really want to anchor that tissue to like periosteum. And there's other applications for it as well, in that, but it's yeah. non-absorbable. Yeah, I think uniquely what uh, what I've read about it too is that it will retain its tensile strength just after one throw, and uh, that's I can see why that's helpful. You know, for like a lateral tarsal strip, you're trying to anchor it to the periosteum, but you don't really see necessarily where you you're going with that. You're just kind of doing it by feel a lot of the time. So you'd really like it to maintain its tensile strength after one throw because you don't want to like go back and mess around there too much. And then the last one, which actually isn't covered in BCSC, but is used somewhat frequently in intraocular surgery is Gore-Tex suture. Now, Gore-Tex, its generic name is polytetrafluoroethylene. It's also a permanent suture, and its most common use that we're aware of is be used for fixation of intraocular lenses. So it's one technique to put an intraocular lens in the eye when they don't have a capsule bag to stuff the lens into. And, you know, in general, it's compared to polypropylene, like in the trade name would be proline. And, you know, there are some kind of advantages and disadvantages of Gore-Tex compared to proline, both as permanent uh, intraocular sutures that maintain tension. So some of the advantages are that, and this is per um, uh, a paper, a study um, out of the British Journal of Ophthalmology that looked at safety and efficacy of Gore-Tex sutures that poorly has high, you know, good tensile strength. It's very visible because it's a white color, which can be helpful when you're doing delicate intraocular surgery. And it has, reportedly has a minimal inflammatory response and memory. Just however, there are some disadvantages to it. It's a thicker suture, so it can be harder to bury a knot in the sclera if you're trying to do something like bury um, suture that, a suture to eye wall into, into the sclera. And, you know, some people report that the uh, that the needle for Gore-Tex sutures may not be quite as sharp as as other sutures that may come with proline. So those are just some basic things to think about. I think there's a lot of controversy. You know, different surgeons have different preferences, so we won't try, won't try to go too much into it. But just to give you a general idea what's going with Gore-Tex in case you hear about it. Um, okay. Do you want to talk about gauge as a suture now? So we talked about type. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about thickness. Yeah, this is the thickness of the suture material itself, the thread. Mm-hmm. And it goes from, in general, 10-0 is the thinnest that you'll probably use. Mm-hmm. I think there are sutures that are actually even thinner, like uh, 11-0, I think. But I'm pretty sure one of the surgery techs we I used to work with told me he'd quit if I ever made him try to load an 11-0 suture because 10-0 is hard enough to even see in the air without a microscope. The Can't legendary 11-0 suture. We, you yeah. know, there's a possibility we're all surrounded by 11-0 suture at all times and just oh can't gosh. see it. <laughs> You're legendary. breathing it in. It's, it's 11 like, uh, Yeah. It's basically coronavirus. Oh, my God. 
So tenno, um, and then it goes down. As the number goes down, the gauge, the thickness of the thread actually gets bigger. So yeah. I don't know. I've never seen a 4.0 used in optom- ophthalmology, Ben, but you have it listed here. Yeah, it's so 4.0 from an ophthalmologist's <laughs> perspective is totally barbaric, but not really. There are some uses as like a traction suture. So if you're just trying to do, put something through to like, you know, under a muscle so you can pull the, the eye in one direction or another, like, you know, for a scleral buckle surgery, for example, or, you know, pull through the lid just to move the lid in a certain direction for certain oculoplastic procedures, then, you know, that's one use for 4.0. That's got to be the biggest suture that you'd use in ophthalmic surgery. Like, I don't see a use for 3.0, um, even with an <laughs> oculoplastic surgery. If you're curious, by the way, and, and this, this could lead to confusion, you know, it goes from 3.0 to 2.0 to 1.0 to O suture, and then you can get to straight one suture, like not 1.0, but one suture, and it gets bigger from there. So two suture is bigger than one suture. So I could see that leading to some confusion. Saying 4.0 is important. 4 suture is something completely different. I'm imagining like rope to tie ships to dock, like... Yeah, my that yeah, my I mean it's not a secret. My wife, um, who's been on this program. Oh, she's my wife now. We got married. I don't know if that's been announced in the podcast. Yeah, but, uh, we had a we had a COVID marriage, but um she uses like one or two suture, not one oh, oh but like one suture. It's just she's a freaking <laughs> barbarian. I like don't I, she's an obstetrician. <laughs> it's it's insane to me. So we're gonna stay far away from that. Um, so, you know, five and six O suture though can be used in ophthalmic surgeries. Six O, you know, BCAC lists that as used, being used in muscle surgery. You know, I tend to agree that's where I kind of see it the most like strabismus surgery, passing it through the muscle. You know, it's about the right size for that. Um, what about- You could use a six O for a corneal traction suture too. It's a little- Yeah, like for a traction suture for the cornea. Yep. For something delicate like that. Um, that's, that's, that's a good size, like a six O silk is common for corneal traction. And then that goes also goes to seven O. Some people use seven O for corneal traction sutures, and you know I, I know in retina sometimes use it for conjunctival suturing or for uh, scleral suturing to close sclerotomies. So it can kind of get into that conj and scleral territory. Um, that's like seven to eight O for conj and scleral suturing. And then Andrew, what about nine O? Do you ever use nine O? Uh, yeah, I, I say like um, in one specific uh, situation when you've got a globe rupture and you're trying to figure out like which zones, which areas you're supposed to suture. There is kind of a unofficial rule about 8, 9, and 10. Um, Eta would be for stuff in the sclera further away from the cornea. Nino would be you're getting a little closer to the subcornea. It's around the limbus. So nino for the things around the limbus that you need to suture. And things on the cornea itself, lacerations we're talking about for ruptures, that would be what tenno would be for. Right. Uh, in anything else, like different um, different kinds of surgery, it honestly is sort of up to however the surgeon was trained. Like at least from what I saw, between almost ten different attendings at Wilmer for glaucoma surgery, there's a big variation from eight to ten o about you know what exactly people are used to using for conch closure or uh, mainly conch closure. Honestly, everybody pretty much agrees ten o for flap suturing scleral flap suturing but there is some variation past i think the globe trauma stuff right right and um you know to remind people trap flaps are partial thickness sclera so that's why you'd want to use a small suture yeah no just uh, in case you know i don't know who 
you know, our, our audiences all the time. And that's compared to like something more like a sclerotomy, which might happen in retina surgery. You put a trocar and make a full thickness scleral, uh, you have a full thickness scleral hole. You usually use something more like eight or seven O to close that because it's, it's like all the way through. Yeah. Sorry. And it's not just the fact that it's the material that you're trying to oppose back together, the tissue that you're trying to oppose for a trabeculectomy flap. Everybody uses as thin as they can because you might, you're going to want to laser that later or have the option of lasering it. Mm -hmm. And you might as well not have a giant beefy piece of rope there to chew through in the clinic. Yeah. In my opinion, it's hard enough to laser 10 so I agree. I don't know. <laughs> the, like yeah. the two times I've tried to laser or uh, yeah. uh, trap flaps. But certainly a 7 or an 8 they'd be definitely a post There's definitely no question that it can do that. Yeah. They can do that. Okay, so now we'll talk about the needle. Um, the main thing to know about, and we're not going to go into all the, because every company has a different way to name their needles, like CT and CTX and like all these different things. But let's talk about the four major types of needle points. So those are taper, cutting, reverse cutting, and spatula. So let's start with taper. So, okay, you're going to have to imagine with us because we're in audio format. But taper is like, is just like, if you imagine you like take like a cone hat, like a dunce hat, it's that shape. So it's like, a, there's a point at the end and it's like a round cone all the way down, a round shaft. These are really good for conjunctival closure because it basically makes a hole the size and shape of the suture. So it can lead to watertight conjunctival closure, like in a trabeculectomy. Imagine like it's, it's not so much about the size of the thing because the size is going to ultimately be the diameter of the thickest part of that needle point, right? Right at the mm-hmm. base. Mm-hmm. But if there's a sharp edge to that, as you pass the thing through, if you have any vector force along a you know, different angle or something, that sharp edge could cut a little bit more than you intended. So it's kind of as if uh, we're with a completely round, round-edged taper point, you don't have any risk of, as you're trying to pass the thing through wherever, whatever tissue you're passing through, you don't have any risk of creating a more lateral cut and opening up your... Uh, passageway any more than you intended to yeah and that contrasts nicely with the next two which are cutting and reverse cutting needles so mm-hmm. just to help you visualize take your hand turn it into a fist then take out your index finger and curl it so that's kind of like in a c shape or something so you know that's like the average shape of of, of your most of your needles the c is a c yeah so a cutting is a triangle where the pointy, where the kind of the peak of that triangle, the is edge pointed of the towards, blade. yeah, the edge yeah. of the blade is pointing towards the inside of the curve. So um, the, that's like the inside of your inside part of your index finger that's curved there. So that means that the kind of the back part of your finger would be flat, and then it'd be a triangle that comes to a point on the inside part of your finger. And reverse cutting is the opposite, where the pointy part, you know, the the cutting part would be along the back part of your finger. And the flat part would be on the inside part of your finger. Neither of these have great advantages within ophthalmic surgery specifically. Uh, Reverse cutting might be nice to be able to get through particularly tough resistant tissue, you know, especially maybe more like oculoplastics land. But, you know, these don't have like huge benefits within intra, you know, ocular intraocular surgery. That's compared to spatula, which is a trapezoidal shape. 
So it's almost like a reverse cutting suture, but instead of the pointy part, like the back part of your finger being like, you know, a sharp, coming to a sharp point, it's actually flat, just like a little bit less flat. So it's like a trapezoid where the inside part of your finger is the wide part of the trapezoid and the top part of your finger, the, the back part of your finger is the thinner part of the trapezoid. And this has a lot of advantages, especially with partial thickness passes. Like if you're trying to go partial thickness through the cornea or through the sclera, because that back part is flat. And like Andrew was kind of alluding to with um, taper point needles, it wouldn't cut through sclera as you're passing through. It would be flat and kind of help you with lamellar passes. It'll peel off the layers of the onion along the layers that already exist. And it won't cut through the onion in ways it wasn't meant to separate. It's flat on both ends. Both sides. Both sides, yeah. Both sides, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a small difference. A flat needle on the tip is not that useful. Um, okay. Uh, Andrew, you want to hit us with some surgical technique to close off the episode? Yeah, I mean, this stuff, just from stuff we learn and are still learning and earlier in our careers, but... Most of your bosses and attendings will tell you not to grab the needle with anything but the needle driver, which means um, that can be kind of tricky, honestly. And so you'll probably spend some time dancing and fumbling, trying to get the needle to come back into right where you want it on your needle driver, basically fishing in air for it. This will supposedly kind of preserve your instruments because like, if you keep grabbing at the needle with the... forceps that were meant to have opposing platforms uh, that can actually dull those platforms or kind of warp or bend them. And then like, say you want to do it with a tie or something, your ties don't hold traction. Maybe it's because somebody has been kind of grabbing at needles with them too much. Right. And it's a similar reason for why cutting boards are really only made of plastic or wood. It's because when you're cutting with a knife, you don't want your knife to be hitting something that has equal or more hardness than it because it'll either dull or break the blade. So similarly, you only want, you don't want to use your forceps on something like metal, like the metal of your uh, suture, because it's not designed to withstand the hardness of engaging with that suture needle and that'll warp it or bend it or break it. But at the same time, there are materials that are just really make it that tough to do. So I'm thinking 10 ovicral again. So I've actually had very uh, accomplished uh, surgeons say, forget that. Just I'm telling you to grab the thing with whatever you need to grab. I've also had uh, accomplished folks tut-tut at me and kind of, you know, do the whole mild, gentle corporal punishment <laughs> whenever I try to do it. But I say, if you do have to grab the needle, at least try to avoid damaging or at least blunting the sharp ends of it by avoiding the, I'll say, distal third, where the sharp stuff is, where at whatever point it is, if it's a spatulated tip, a taper point, whatever, just avoid grabbing it from the tip to the third, like that distal third. Last thing, this is uh, this is something that gets us a lot. If you are pulling the suture through tissue, beware of two things. Number one, pull on the suture, not the needle itself. Because if you are tugging on the needle, that can easily pop off the suture. The second point, pay attention to how much you're pulling through because you can easily pull the entire thing all the way through. And then you got to do your pass all over again. 
and there will be much sighing. I've had many people sigh at me in my training so far. Right. We'll support you if you make that mistake, but like no one else will. So I just, I just <laughs> <do it. laughs> like we'll be your friends always. Okay. So just to summarize what we talked about, we talked about absorbable and non-absorbable sutures. So the absorbables are gut, which lasts about four to eight days and Vicryl that lasts seven to 10 days. Uh, and then the non-absorbables, which include silk, which you generally won't leave in someone's eye or face. Nylon, which is great, but doesn't keep, maintain tensile strength forever. Proline, which does. Polyester or mercelene, which is one of the subtypes, which is braided and holds tension really nicely. And Gore-Tex, which is just another intraocular suture um, that, that one can use, especially for in, intraocular lens uh, fixation. Then we talked about gauges of suture, and Andrew gave a great kind of um, rule of thumb where he used 10-0 for corneal suturing, 9-0 for limbal suturing, and 8-0 for conjunctival scleral suturing, with a lot of variation in between depending on the context and what type of surgery you're doing. Last, we talked about needle points. Well, almost last, we talked about needle points, which include taper, which is good for watertight conjunctival closure, cutting and reverse cutting, which don't have a ton of great advantages specifically within ophthalmology and spatulated sutures, which are great for partial thickness passes through cornea and sclera. Last, Andrew gave a number of great surgical technique tips to help you keep your instruments lasting longer and your emotional tenor lasting longer in the OR. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes for ears with the number four. We also have the website that's eyes for with the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, then a rating review on uh, iTunes or wherever you found us is extremely helpful. We'll see you guys next week with something we haven't decided yet. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>